Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I tell you, early Sunday morning, I woke up around 3 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't get back to sleep. So I picked up a book, hoping you know I'd read it and drift back to sleep. It was by Mark Knoll, historian I, I'm familiar with. He's been on the program a few times. And the book was called Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind. Now, Mark Knoll is a historian who I've interviewed, as I said. Uh, I deeply respect him. He taught at Notre Dame, uh, one of a group of American historians whose scholarship forced American historians generally to once again take seriously the role of religion in the reconstructions of the United States from before Plymouth Rock right up to the present. And in this little book, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind, he points out that the early church sharpened her intellectual life because she had to explain who Jesus was. She had to explain who Jesus was to herself internally, and she had to explain who Jesus was to the onlooking world, the external challenge, because the world was clueless. There were naughty intellectual problems from the start. Remember, the Christian movement was, along with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots, and the Essenes, just another form of Judaism, the Jesus movement. And uh, Judaism was unapologetically monotheistic. But the revelation given to the apostles went beyond Judaism and contained the truth that while God is certainly one, there are three entities called God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do you explain the relationship between these three entities, these three persons, and how do they relate to the one? Well, this required a rigorous use of the mind as well, of course, as prayer. The apostolic fathers, the apologists, the uh, fathers leading up to the Council of Nicaea, the fathers of the Council of Nicaea, and then the fathers after the Council of Nicaea had to ensure that every scripture could be explained by what came to be known as the dogma of the Trinity. Now, you can think of the dogma of the Trinity as a hypothesis that was framed by the early church to explain all the biblical material God had revealed concerning the Godhead. That's one way of looking at it. Remember, there was vigorous debate within the church. I mean, from the start, the apostolic tradition had to distinguish itself from the heretical movements that were growing up within the broader Jesus movement. That was the internal problem that required answering objections and a good use of the intellect. But you also had the external mission of the church to the world. The church was preaching Christ to a world filled with a bewildering array of philosophies and religions. I mean, these were religious competitors and philosophical competitors, ready to mock the gospel, ready to suppress our ideas, and of course, we faced a government all too ready to persecute the followers of Jesus' way. That was the real cancel culture. The revelation of the Word made flesh— had to compete with the Judaism of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. But even more significant, the earliest Christian preachers and teachers had to contend with a multiplicity of Mediterranean religions, almost all of which were polytheistic. 
There were the followers of the Oracle Delphi. There were the Pythagoreans, the cult of Asclepius. There was the cult of the Emperor Augustus. There were the Egyptian followers of Isis and Osiris. There were Persian followers of Zoroaster. There were the students of the philosophies of Stoicism, Epicureanism. And I'm telling you, that is just a small sample. The public preachers of all these religions and philosophies would demand explanations from Christians. They would say, what are you talking about? What is this good news? Prove it. You can see this in the life of St. Paul. He's on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 in Athens. He stands before various courts having to explain himself and let people know what the gospel was. And, of course, he addresses leaders in the synagogue. Christians just couldn't sit back and say, oh, we believe these things because the Bible says it. Now, leave me alone. First of all, there was no Bible as we know of it today. But secondly, the church was under obligation to do its best to persuade the world that it could be reconciled with God. And God went to the greatest lengths to reconcile the world to himself and then to persuade the world that he had done so. He took on human flesh. He became one of us in order to explain who he was. Every Christian has to, in some sense, imitate Christ by reaching out to all. And we do our best to make believable these truths revealed by God through the apostles and in the person of Christ. The earliest Christian teachers became all things to all men. That's how St. Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. How did they do it? Many, many different ways. I'll mention just one to begin with. Um, They engaged the world with what we call the doctrine of creation. Why begin with creation? Well, because everyone has to explain how things got here. And all religions and philosophies have to deal with why there is something rather than nothing. And so the earliest preachers stressed that the central figure in our gospel— our good news. The central figure was, in fact, the Word of God made flesh. He was the image of the invisible God who created and sustains all things. The central figure in our proclamation, Jesus Christ, is relevant to all persons because he created them. He created all persons. He created the world we all live in. So the doctrine of creation really sharpened the mind of the early church, and it continues to do so uh, to this day. The affirmation that Christ created all things really carries the strongest possible implications for intellectual life. Put it simple, it's it's this. Uh, For believers, to be studying created things is to be studying the craftsmanship of Christ. It's a form of communion with him. We think Christ's thoughts after him as we investigate the world he created. Everything was created by the Word, uh, by the Son of God. Uh, It's a a legitimate area of intellectual study. In fact, there's no area of creation that's illegitimate to study. Uh, So we call the doctrine of creation really the beginning of the importance for the Christian life of the mind. I'll just read a few passages here so you can kind of sense the gravity of this teaching right from the biblical text itself. The Word was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Or St. Paul in Colossians 1, 
Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Uh, let me throw in Hebrews 1, 2, 2. Uh, in these last days, God has spoken conclusively to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Just oceans of commentary have been written on these passages. Bishop Barron, for instance, writes that there's nothing um, humanly possible to study about the created realm that in principle leads us away from Jesus. Now, of course, humans may misunderstand knowledge that they gain by studying the world. They might put it to evil use. They might transform it into an idol or otherwise abuse it. But these shortcomings do not alter the fact that the world was brought into existence by Jesus Christ, and our minds can study that world as a form of communion with him. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Lagos, the Word of God, who created all things and sustains all things, gives us warrant to use our intellects to study the world he created because, by so doing, we can find our way back to him. Now, a lot more could be said on that. But the doctrine of creation guarantees the value of intellectual pursuit. But I'll mention another feature of early church life that necessitated valuing the life of the mind. Just look at the multiplicity and often the complexity of the pictures and images of Jesus. Imagine that you were given a task. Take these images that I'm going to describe, pictures. Think of them as photographs that, that you had to put in a scrapbook or a photo album, or even collect them in your Google Pictures. And imagine that you had to organize and arrange these pictures, um, and then you have to write captions for them and explain the relationship to one another. How does Jesus, the lamb slain before the beginning of the world, compare with Jesus as the faithful and true witness? This requires engaging the intellect. So I'm going to limit myself to the book of Revelation. Just to show you, I'm scratching the surface here. Here's Jesus. These pictures, one right, right after another, are kaleidoscopic. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is someone like a son of man. He is the first and the last who died and came to life again. He is the son of God whose eyes are like the blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He is the one who searches hearts and minds. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the spirit of prophecy. He's a rider on a white horse who's called faithful and true, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and on whose head are many crowns. He's one dressed in a white robe, dipped in blood, whose name is the word of God. He is one who rules with an iron scepter, king of kings, lord of lords, the root and offspring of David, the morning star. Those are just images, pictures. You can also take a look at his actions. Again, I'm, I'm limiting myself to just the first three chapters of Revelation with this one. He loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. He holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He wields a sharp and double-edged sword. He'll rule the nations with an iron scepter. He'll dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's only half of them in the first 
three chapters of Revelation. Christianity has been known as a doctrinal, even an intellectual religion, compared to many world religions. And that's because the figure of Jesus Christ is displayed with extraordinary multiplicity, begging for explanation. Jesus was at the center of this new religion that came out of Judea and out of a culture shaped by the religion of Israel. It spreads into the Roman world, full of orderly laws and brutal armies. It spreads into a culture formed by Hellenistic philosophy. And these circumstances force the church to think deeply, just to know its own identity and its own internal self-understanding. Who were we as disciples of this Jesus? And then, of course, there was the mission to the world. Try to craft a coherent picture of all these diverse images of Jesus and all of his actions, and it's easy to get exhausted. Unfortunately for me, I didn't get exhausted or get back to sleep that night. I got excited and decided to jot down some notes for this commentary. So thanks for the opportunity, and thanks to Mark Knoll, who takes Jesus with the utmost seriousness as Lord of all.